Resilience 2100, Tools for Navigating Change in the 21st Century. It's what they call an archetypal trap, that people who have wealth and power have the ability to accumulate more. And they will continue to do so until somebody or something says, no, you can't. And it, so it's a fact of life. These people behave like that. Um, and it, it either takes a revolution, like the French Revolution, for example, or it takes a very deliberate policy intervention. Welcome to Resilience 2100. I'm the host, Steve Mottemeyer. Today we have a discussion with Mike Jones from the Swedish Biodiversity Institute and Resilience Theme Lead for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. We're going to be talking about how resilience thinking can inform managing change in the 21st century. One of the things that I like to do is talk about resilience in everyday terms. People okay. can recognize. The problem of getting people to understand what it's all about is translating that jargon, that scientific jargon that they use to describe panarchy and adaptive cycles. So uh, when you're talking about resilience, what do you mean? Well, literally, it means to bounce back or to recover from some kind of disturbance. Um, but in terms of the social-ecological systems, it's also um, recognizing that resilience itself is an emergent property. It's not a given. It's not something that you can build. It's not something that you can measure. And that's one of the problems that we have, I think, in general with the way a lot of people are using the word. They still think about it in mechanistic terms. You know, ever since Newton and uh, and the laws of gravity, and that's laid the foundation for what we know today as the industrial society. It's it's provided us with a science that's really transformed society, but it's taken us too far. So and and we need what we need to do now, as well as have that understanding of linear cause effect thinking, and how it leads us to ever greater knowledge about the specifics of certain things. We also need a science that helps us to bring it all together to see the big picture. The, t the two things are very complementary. We need a very different way of thinking about the world and our place in it. And that's, that's the real difference between simple systems thinking, which is based on this idea that we can predict what's going to happen and that we know how things work um, and that we can, we can make a minor adjustment here or a minor adjustment there and everything will be okay. That's the simple systems perspective on it. The complex systems perspective says, no, this is extraordinarily uncertain. We are dealing with those unknown unknowns, which we all know from Donald Rumsfeld. And, stuff. and it, you know, he was absolutely right. It's, it's how do we deal with those unknown unknowns? 
which means we have to be flexible. As one of those unknown unknowns crops up, then we need to be in a position to adapt to it. And it's, it also means that we're always a step behind the curve of change. So it's a, we, and that means that we need to be very quick in the way we adapt. So it suggests that there's scope for a lot of people doing small-scale experiments with all kinds of things, looking at the future, looking at the uncertainty and saying, well, under these kinds of conditions, these kinds of innovations will be really useful. So you start to pile them up and stick them on a shelf in the back store so that when they're needed, you can pull them out and apply them. You're saying that if you're in a time of where you realize it's uncertain and or changing baseline conditions, that you should be doing lots of little experiments of, 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 that you think might be helpful, but no, you know that they may or may not be helpful because you don't really know yet. Is that right? You don't really know yet, and that's that's one of the, the sort of core um, attributes of, of resilience within a, a a resilient social system is that you run these small experiments. You recognize that you don't know how things are going to happen. You can develop some idea of the future direction you want to move in. You can develop a strategy and a plan for getting there. But all of that is based on the assumption, I don't know. So I'm going to be monitoring and reflecting and adapting as I go. Mm -hmm. And always bearing in mind that there may be some big change that will come out of the blue mm -hmm. and render everything that you've done no yeah. longer valid. But that's the case whether or not you've done anything. But if you have done these experiments, then you at least begin to test and understand options for the future that may be more relevant. As yeah, conditions and, it's, and it's all about it's it's about learning how to think in terms of evolutionary process of change, rather than thinking in terms of predictability and um, we can make this happen. We need to think ecologically. No matter what kind of specialist training we might have had, we need to be able to think like ecologists as well. The whole idea of tipping points seems to be part of the resilience model. How, how do you talk about uh, tipping points and resilience and how we understand it? Tipping points, in a way, is, is the, um, the key to, to resilience thinking and to planning using resilience thinking. Um, and it, it boils down to knowing the system that we have now um, through an analysis and assessment of that system, figuring out, well, what's, what are the drivers, what are the primary drivers that are either keeping it in that state or tending to push it towards boundaries that we don't want to cross. The planetary boundaries concept of these nine different thresholds, they're all interconnected. Right. And the potential for synergistic effects there is very high, which is why people who understand resilience and systems and tipping points, why they're so very concerned about the future of humanity.
climate change is happening really fast. Um, and it's not just how people are responding to it, it's about how nature's responding to it. And those, those animals and plants that are capable of moving across the landscape as the climate change, they're doing it. The yeah. systems are changing now as we watch them, but then they're changing at a much faster rate than they have in, in the past 10,000 years. Or and so. are we? Well, my impression is that for, for most of us in industrial societies, no, we're carrying on business as usual. We are a consumer society. We're an industrial society. We believe in um, gross domestic product as an indicator of uh, development and well-being. Even though there is now growing evidence to say that it's nothing to do with GDP. You get a certain amount of economic development, then there are a whole bunch of other things that become really important in terms of our health and our happiness. Mm -hmm. So it, again, it's this, this question of our, our economic models haven't, yeah. haven't kept pace with the need to change. Income inequality globally is, is huge and becoming obvious as global communications increases. So um, if you're living on four dollars a day or something or two the equivalent of two dollars a day um you might be reading about what everybody else is living on and it's not a news to you that you're you know that the income is out of whack or at least a certain not fairly distributed and yet at the same time at least here in the united states um there's plenty of folks who are more than happy with that and if anything want even they just they don't see any tipping point at all they just keep keep driving inequality and I, and i wonder are there tipping points in cultures and in governments and are, is anybody working on those i think french revolution <laughs> okay that was a tipping point based on income inequality absolutely it's what they call an archetypal trap that people who have wealth and power have the ability to accumulate more and they will continue to do so until somebody or something says no you can't and it so it's a fact of life that people behave like that mm -hmm. um, and it it either takes a revolution like the French Revolution for example or it takes a very deliberate policy intervention so in Sweden for instance they had the the, the movement towards social democracy where the where the trade union said this is enough industry you're making far too much money at our expense um, we want a fair share of the cake. And uh, that led to what Sweden is today in terms of uh, being a social democracy. Although living there, I see that that is being eroded now by this very normal natural human tendency to accumulate power. Mm -hmm. One of my colleagues from the Resilience Alliance said that humans are automatic power-seeking devices. Uh -huh. <laughs> so we are, we are driven to it. It's, it's, it's yeah. part of what we are. nice to think that all these people who have all this power um, recognized that they had all this power and that it was leading humanity as a whole globally down the wrong path it would be really nice to think that they could say okay time to stop 
let's reorganize things let's use our power to change the system if they did that then you could perhaps create the kind of transformation that we need um, but the likelihood of that happening I think is very very small there are some individuals yeah. who who really do think socially as opposed to selfishly mm -hmm. um, and who will take the money that they've made and the ideas that they've got and use those to uh, to transform the world but they're, they're relatively few and far between there is a whole system that says no we're going to keep going in the direction that we're going and that's 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 why we need the systems approach to creating change rather than a than a, a piecemeal saying well i think it's um it's this and let's learn more and more about this or i think it's that and let's learn more about more and more about that look look at the, the system as a whole It's a, a rigidity trap. So these are people who are thinking in very fixed ways mm -hmm. about what what they're going to do when the world around is changing to the point where we know that fixed way of thinking isn't going to take us in a good direction. It's going to lead us further towards this undesirable climate, for instance. It's going to lead us further towards uh, accelerated loss of biodiversity, further towards pollution. You know, if, if you actually step back and look at what's going on on the planet today, we're eating it at a furious pace and we're polluting what's left. I mean, can, can you really imagine anything more stupid? If we're eating it and polluting it and not really thinking about what we're doing and thinking seriously about the way we need to change, then we're headed for the edge of the cliff. Basically, we've got two kinds of people in the world today. There's the coping actors, that are the short-term thinkers, and have got the power to do all kinds of stuff over the short term. And that's, in essence, that's the industrialized world. And then you've got the the uh, the bystanders, the helpless bystanders. That's that's the underdeveloped part of the world. That's being exploited. It's being exploited for its human capital and its and its natural capital to feed the industrial machine. Right. Okay. So there's no third category. Well, they're there, but it's it's um, it's emergent, and it really depends on the the dominant part of the world today. The industrial society is saying, "Okay, we know we're at the end of the road here. We've got to we've got to change. We cannot continue with business as usual." Mm -hmm. So if they change from being coping actors to adaptive managers. Then they're gonna they they've got to recognise that the the helpless uh, bystanders are part of the global system, right. and that gets us back to dealing with this problem of equity, social equity, economic equity. Mm -hmm. If you've got a, a system which is <clears throat> divided in the sense that it is, you're promoting revolution. For instance, look at look at the the war in in um, Syria right now, and how that's driving refugees into Europe. Look at the flow of refugees from Africa. A lot of that's not driven by warfare, it's driven by poverty. Mm -hmm. That is changing Europe. It's leading to this swing towards uh, right. to the right. It's driven by climate change, it's driven by poverty, it's driven by all kinds of things. Mm -hmm.
but it's it's taking us in a direction that we don't want to go so to deal with that kind of thing we've got to got to learn to be adaptive managers industrial societies have to learn how to be adaptive managers to address this this major imbalance that exists between the developed and the underdeveloped Resilience itself is a subset of adaptive capacity. If you don't have resilience, you can't adapt. Oh, okay. it's, it's, you know, that's the logic there, and it makes perfect sense. So that, and that resilience is both a social and, a, and an ecological resilience. If you've got those which, which imply good governance, it implies a high, high social and ecological potential for change. Mm -hmm. If you've got those, then you've got the capacity to adapt. So adaptive to, capacity is really the long-term goal, and resilience is the way to get us there. Yeah. We need to invest energy in systems thinking and understanding systems thinking, and yes. then we need to collaborate with like-minded, like integrated thinkers. Yes. And that's what it's going to take to shift yeah. us to an adaptive yeah. management approach yeah. that can handle all the change we're facing. Yeah. Seems possible. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, my pleasure. Listening to Resilience 2100. I'm the host, Steve Mottemeyer, and today's guest was Mike Jones from the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. You can find more podcasts at our website, www.resilience2100.com, or at your local favorite podcast provider. Thank you, and see you next time.